0: From Romans chapter 3 verses 19 to 31. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The word of the Lord.
1: We look to you, uh, remembering once again that you are a God who has definitively shown your love for us in Jesus. And you are a God who speaks to us again and again in your word that we might come to know you, that we might come to know your love, that we might come to be changed by you. And so we pray for that powerful work to be, for that powerful word to be at work in us this morning. Lord, would you please change us? Would you please lead us into all of life worship of you? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're now, I think, about four weeks into our study of the book of Romans. And um, it seems that uh, Christians throughout the ages, as they find themselves going through this book, the book of Romans, they often come to experience something that I think can best be named as power. Power. If you gather almost any group of Christians together, almost of any size, certainly this size here, you will almost certainly find some people, if we were to have a conversation talking about something that happens to them as they were working through this book. Maybe some verse or some passage suddenly shifted something in their very being, and for the first time they saw and were changed, there is power in this book. That this is the case would be no surprise to Paul, who wrote this letter to the Romans. When he was seeking to help and strengthen the Roman church who were going through difficulties, he knew the very best thing he could do for them was to tell them again the gospel. Because, as he says, the gospel, in it we find the power of God for salvation. And it is perhaps the passage that we just read that is one of the most central, the most powerful passages even in Romans as it points us to the gospel. The, the last couple of weeks has been kind of leading to this point. Here is the culmination. The last couple of weeks as we've been considering idolatry and we've been considering human sin, we've been seeing humans' great need. We've been seeing something that is needing to happen, and here we find the solution. And the solution that we see, the center as it's trying to talk about the gospel in these verses, is the righteousness of God. Maybe you noticed it when Jennifer was reading. We're going to be especially focusing on that middle section, 21 to 26. and. Almost every other verse uses that phrase. Verse 21, the righteousness of God. Again, verse 22, the righteousness of God. Verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. And again, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. The righteousness of God is central, according to Paul's understanding of understanding the gospel. And to understand this, I think it's useful for us to kind of step back for a moment and to consider two truths about God that we find throughout all of Scripture. One is that our God is one who is unwaveringly committed to the good of his people. He is unwaveringly committed to the good of his people we see this from the very beginning when God said let there be light and he filled this world with good things and beauty and stars and animals and he put us there he didn't do this because he was bored he didn't create everything because he was lonely he created this world because he is filled with joy and he wanted to share that joy with others he was committed to our good And even after humanity completely turns its back on God and uh, and idolatry and rejection, what do we see when he, he comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, I am going to bless you and through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless all of humanity. We see a commitment for the good of his people. And then when Abraham's descendants, generation after generation, are turning from him, eventually they go into exile, what do we see? But God, again, saying the same things. He says through the prophet Isaiah, how can I give you up, Israel? I will not hand you over to destruction. We just read at the very beginning of our service, even if a mom can forget her nursing child, I cannot forget you. And so in Isaiah, he promises, I will again bless your descendants. He is unwaveringly committed to the good of his people. Now, the second attribute of God that I think we need to consider in understanding this is that God also, in this world of sin, is a God of wrath, a God who judges all evil. And in fact, actually, in chapter 2, when Paul is speaking of his gospel, he says this is a key part of his gospel. In 2 verse 16, he speaks about how there is a day of wrath in the future, a day when God would judge all of the secrets of human hearts through Christ Jesus. He says, according to my gospel, that God is a God of wrath is actually part of the good news. And we might say, how? How is God's wrath part of the good news? And I think the reason that some of us kind of have a hard time even thinking of in those terms is, is because we have perhaps a misunderstanding of what God's wrath is. So um, in, uh, in the Marvel comics, especially like Spider-Man and Daredevil, there is this one arch-villain vil- known as Kingpin or Wilson Fisk. Maybe you know who he is. He's this hulk of a guy. And what makes him so terrifying as a villain is that at certain points he is just given over to overpowering, terrifying rage. In, in one of the Marvel TV shows, there's this moment where he's been embarrassed and he feels deeply wounded. And, and so for the next few minutes, he just takes it out on one person and, and he's just like breathing hard and you can feel the passion and he's seeing red and he just, he's just, it's brutal. Until at the very end, he starts, after the person he's been attacking is just destroyed, You see him finally being able to breathe calmly and move away with blood spattered and he's okay again because his aggression has been resolved. That is in no way what the wrath of God looks like. God does not see red. God does not lose control. God does not have some aggression within him that he just needs to vent to be okay. Now, when Scripture speaks of the wrath of God, it's speaking of God's unceasing opposition to all that is wrong. Just as God says yes to all that is good, He says a definitive no to injustice, to evil, to lies, and He will not rest until they are no more. That's what we're talking about with the wrath of God. And if we begin to understand that, that this is this deep commitment within God to say no to all that is wrong with the world, we can begin to understand how that is a good thing. In fact, it is necessary for the good news. There's a friend of mine, not someone connected to this church, who, as a teen, um, was sexually abused by his youth pastor, her youth pastor. A, a, A terrible... Abuse of trust, a terrible abuse of power. It's horrific. And what made the situation even worse was that when she sought to bring what happens to light, she was not able to get justice. It's her word against his. Charges were dropped. And he continues, to my knowledge, to serve as a youth pastor to this day. And some of you here, I know, know what this is like all too well. She, and perhaps some of you, know the ache of lies that continue to be lies, and until they are brought to truth, that ache will not go away. An ache to see something that is wrong be brought to right, an ache to see evil being done to stop I mean, we know other stories of this, right? We know of people who are in their poverty oppressed by those in power, people who are, who are victims of terrible lies, people who are regularly being hurt. There are, is a cry throughout the world for justice, and until justice is met, until lies are exposed, until evil is dealt with, things cannot be right? God must be a wrathful God for the good news to be good. We only can have hope in the world to come if we know that God says no to all of this and he will destroy all that is wrong with this world. So we have these two truths that God is unwaveringly committed to his people and he is unceasingly opposed to what is wrong. And and we see those coming together at certain places in the Old Testament. If you sometimes think about the Psalms where you have the psalmist crying out to God, God, you see what is happening to me. You see the evildoer. Come down, bring justice and save me. Show good to me and wipe out what is wrong. We see in Isaiah these two ideas come together with this idea of the righteousness of God. God promises in Isaiah that I will bring my righteousness to bear upon you. And by that he's saying, I will save you from the evildoers and I will show my goodness to you. God is unceasingly opposed to what is wrong. He is unwaveringly committed to his people. This we see God saying, I will make my righteousness known. But perhaps as as we're talking about these two aspects of who God is, you're beginning potentially to feel attention. What happens if the people God is unwaveringly committed to are themselves wrong? What happens if they are evildoers, if they are the ones who are bringing about injustice and, and bringing about what is wrong? If you were with us when we were preaching through Judges, you know that very tension, don't you? God is, is, loves his people and is seeking their good, but again and again they turn their back on him idolatrously. They are evildoers. How do these two hold together? How can God be faithful to a people and do good to those who themselves deserve judgment. By the time that Paul is writing, Jews in that day thought they had kind of a solution to that tension, and that is through the law. If there is a line between the wicked and the righteous, the line is the law. Those who hold to the Mosaic law, who are circumcised, who are faithful Jews, they were the ones who could know that, that the law would make them righteous, and they could be rescued, and the last day, God would do all of this terrible judgments to them, while these people would be the good people that God would save. But if you were with us this last week, you know that Paul has completely turned that upside down, because he says, look, having the law is not what makes you righteous. It's being changed by the law. It's, it's doing the law that makes you right. And even the most reverent, pious Jew, if they are honest with themselves, will recognize they fall short. And so, as we saw last week and we saw at the beginning of our passage this week, he says, now whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world." May be accountable to god the whole world all of humanity fails before god's judgment is the point here even any of us however religious we might be however pious we might be if we are deeply honest with ourselves we will recognize that there are clear times where we could have chosen love towards someone else and instead we chose self-protection That there is a posture that we could have had full of gratitude and praise towards God where oftentimes we turn on ourselves. We were made for glory, to be glorious like God, to reflect his goodness, and we have fallen deeply short. That's what we see in our passage where he says, all have sinned. Jews who keep the law and Gentiles alike, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you see the tension? If we are all, if there is a line between the evil and the righteous, and all of us are on the wrong side of that line, how can God be good to us and therefore also be righteous and just? If you feel that tension, how how can the righteousness of God be real? Then you will begin to understand what Paul is saying in 3 verse 21, where he writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, until this point, you might not have understood how this could hold together. Until this point, it might have been confusing. But now, now we see, and it's not through the law that this happens But now we see how God can both be good to his people and thoroughly just and against all evil. How he continues on. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. God is able to be good to his own and God is able to be unceasingly opposed to all that is wrong through Jesus. He says, all who have sinned, the way that we can be justified, the way that we can be right in God's sight, is by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to kind of develop what that means, how that can be, where he says in verse 25, Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood To be received by faith as a propitiation. This is a word we almost never use. What are we talking about here? Well, propitiation just simply means to turn away wrath or to satisfy wrath. It's a relational term. So um, when I was a kid, um, my brothers and I would collect baseball cards. And um, my younger brother, Steve, his absolute favorite baseball card was a 1985 Olympics Mark McGuire card. It was worth a ton at the time, like $15 dollars. Now imagine if like one time I was just like looking through cards and I was outdoors and I saw the Mark McGuire card and I took it out of the plastic and and I just kind of left it on the ground and it was there overnight and it was raining and the card was ruined. My brother Steve would have every right to be angry with me for what I had done, right? But imagine if I, feeling bad with my paper route money, found the card at the local card store, and got a brand new mint-conditioned version of that card and brought it back to Steve. Steve's anger in that moment would be resolved. The, the, the debt would be paid. I would have propitiated him. There would be no more anger between us, and we could move forward once again as brothers without that standing in the way. That's the idea of propitiation. And what we see here is that Jesus going to the cross, propitiated the wrath of God towards us, that it might be completely satisfied, and that in our relationship with God, God might have nothing but favor towards us. Now, even as I say that, once again, I want to clarify what I think can be a horrible misunderstanding of what I just said, of what this passage says. Because there can be a way of understanding what I just said that divides the Trinity between the Father and the Son. Where, again, the Father, we almost imagine him as this furious Wilson Fisk kingpin-like character. And Jesus, on the other hand, is there with us. And as God wants to just kind of vent everything on us, Jesus says, get behind me, I will take it. And he just kind of absorbs it. And God eventually is placated and everything is okay. That is a horrible blasphemous understanding of what this is because it divides the Trinity in a way that was never meant to be divided. To begin with, it already misunderstands God's wrath. That's who he said. He is not this kind of passionate, just seeing red character. That's not how we should think of it. But beyond that, it The Father is united, sorry, God, the Trinitarian God is united in all of this. It's not just the Father who has wrath towards sin. If you can think of Jesus when he was at the temple, furious about how it's standing in the way of prayer, you see that Jesus himself is also unceasingly opposed to all that is wrong. Jesus, we're told, is the one in the last day who will judge. Jesus stands with the Father as, as a God who is wrathful towards what is wrong. And on the other side of this, do you notice who it is? That chooses for Jesus to be the propitiation. What does it say? It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The Father and the Son, in the unity of the Spirit, together determined that the Son would propitiate the wrath of God. That God might forgive us, God determines to endure the punishment of sin in his very own being. Which I realize is extraordinarily hard for us. We'll never fully understand this. Let me me use a really inadequate illustration to start moving us in the right direction. Again, let's move to thinking about my brother and I. Imagine that that Mark McGuire card wasn't $15, but $15,000. My paper route is never going to take care of that. And so, at that point, there is this enormous debt between my brother and I, and my brother Steve has a decision to make. He can either always have this standing in between us. This can always be something that puts a rift in our relationship. In some ways, that would be deserved because I had wronged him. Or he could, in turn, choose to let it go to, in some ways, endure the cost of all that I did wrong against Him in Himself, and in doing so, just choose to forgive and allow us to move on in our relationship. Now, as I said, this is just a very inadequate analogy, but it begins at least to point in the direction of what has happened on the cross, where God, in order to forgive us the wrong that we have done against Him, knowing that we could never possibly repay what we have done, he himself endured the full penalty, the full power of God's wrath, God's oppositional destructive force. He endured upon himself for us that we might be right with him. And I realized that that there is no way i think we can ever fully get this i i want to maybe just kind of move a little bit more to start trying to give us a, maybe a little bit more of a comprehension of what's happening here um so scripture speaks clearly that we can anticipate that at the very end of human history god will judge everything all lies will be exposed all injustice will be dealt with and the proper penalty will be made All evil will be wiped out. That is what will happen when all things end. What scripture teaches is that when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross for us. Any of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, he went as our representative. In a real way, he carried our sins upon him. Our guilt, we are told, was on him. And when he went to the cross, he was brought forward to the very end of human history. That is, at the cross, the end of time's judgment upon sin was placed upon him. The the end of time judgment for us, where our sin is dealt with, where it's exposed, happened in Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. At the cross, our sin was exposed. The lies were shown to be lies, and our sin was shown to be a sin. In Jesus at the cross, all of our wrongdoing met its just penalty in his death. In in Jesus at the cross, our evil itself was destroyed. We have died with Christ, we are told, if we have placed our faith in him. In Jesus, all of our sin was fully dealt with. The wrath of God was entirely satisfied so that there is now no more anger or condemnation towards us, but only favor towards all who have placed their faith in Jesus. And even as I say that, there's one more misunderstanding that I I think it's really important to clear up. This is a very hard thing to understand, a very hard thing to explain, and so it's not surprising that sometimes we don't explain it very well. And sometimes I've heard an explanation of this that says something like this. If, If God were just to look at you as you are, he would not be able to stand to be in your presence because he sees your sin. He sees all that's wrong, and he would be revolted by that. But the good news of the gospel is that instead of God seeing you, God sees Jesus. And because he sees Jesus when he looks at you, he is filled with love because he sees Jesus. And the implication of that almost is like we're, we're kind of like an annoying kid that the father will allow into the house because we want to play with his son And he wants his son to have his friends, whether they annoy him or not. Do you see how that way of telling the story, how it would become impossible to imagine that we could ever please God? It would be impossible for us to imagine that God could ever really like us. And there's something deeply wrong with the way that story is told, because what that is implying is that God loves you because Jesus went to the cross for you. That God loves you because He sees Jesus. But the order is the opposite. God sent His Son to die on the cross for you because He loves you. Jesus went to the cross because from all eternity God had already seen you, you with all of your quirks. He delighted in you. He knew what you would do to yourself with sin, and he grieved, and his love for you was so perfect, so complete, that he will not rest until all that stands in the way between you and him is dealt with. And that's why he sent Jesus, to to take away the lies, to take away the injustice, to take away all that separates us so that we might become wholly his. See, the reality is, it's not just that God loves you. It's that God smiles upon you because he likes you. He delights in you. And here is how we now finally get to the resolution of what we've been saying from the very beginning. How do these fit together? Notice after Paul speaks about this propitiation, he says this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. How could he have been right by not, by not punishing sins? This is how. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, the one who is later described in chapter 4, a justifier of the one who is ungodly. This is how we are told God can at the same time be a God who is opposed to all evil and will wipe out all evil because he is a God of wrath and yet he can treat you as righteous. Why? because of Jesus. This is the gospel of the righteousness of God. It it tells us that we have a God who is wonderfully, endlessly, unimaginably good, who sees every cry, who sees every ache, who sees every way that sin is ruining us, and He cares, and He will work and work until there is no more, and all that is left is good, because He is wonderfully unimaginably, extraordinarily good. And this is a gospel that speaks of a God who unimaginably, wonderfully, extraordinarily loves you you he loves you not just some hidden version of you hiding behind jesus he he loves you he and and he knows the very things that you want no one to know about yourself the things that cause you the deepest shame he knows your failures he knows your your habits that are, are, are are not good he knows the ways that again and again when you have the opportunity to do what you know is right how again and again he you fail all of that he already knows, and yet he loves you. All of these things he sees and, and your shame, and it doesn't cause him to turn away in disgust and to move away. Remarkably, extraordinarily, when God sees that about you, it has caused him to move towards you to bring his son into this world, to draw near to you, more near than we can possibly imagine, and to take away all of that, all of that sin, all of that shame, all of that guilt, all of it dealt on the cross so that when Jesus died, it died with him. So that you might have nothing standing in the way between you and the God who loves you. This is the gospel of the righteousness of God. And what is extraordinary, what one of the most extraordinary things, of the many extraordinary things about this, is that is, this is not something that you and I need to achieve. To be able to experience this relationship with God, it is not something that we need to earn. It's not something that we have to go through years of practice. It's not something where we have to fulfill the law. No, how is it that we are able to experience it? Jesus, sorry, it said very clearly about how we receive it from Jesus. Whom God, verse 25, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's it. It's a gift. He says right before that the justified freely by His grace as a gift. God wants to give you Jesus. Jesus wants to give you Himself. He wants you to have everything in Him and all He calls you to do is to receive this as a gift and believe. And that belief that belief will change you. In that belief, you will experience a power unlike any other, not because your faith is strong, but because what you are placing your faith in is stronger than you can possibly understand. Whether you are someone who has been Christian for many years, or if right now in this moment you are hearing this, this is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus to hear this again and to receive this gift and to know in Jesus you have everything. What I'd like to do, as we always do, is to take some time for us to confess our sins. And I want us to understand that when we're doing this, this is not so that we can kind of bring ourselves through some, some place of feeling especially bad. It's not an appropriate degree, but that's not the point. The point is as we name ourselves before God, we can then recognize that those very things we are most ashamed of are the very things that God has completely dealt with on the cross. We, we confess our sin that we might more deeply take hold of this gospel by faith. And so let me invite you to spend a couple of minutes turning towards God, to be honest before Him, to receive the reality of His forgiveness in Christ Jesus.